We read this evening from Esther chapter 7, which is found, I believe, in the Pew Bibles on page 524, Esther, the 7th chapter, as we pick up the account of Esther, where we left off this morning. Hear the word of the Lord as it's found in the seventh chapter of the book of Esther. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated And may the Lord bless the reading of his word as we look at it together this evening. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you are driving down the road, have you ever been passed by someone who was not only breaking the speed limit in a very uh, excessive way, but also driving recklessly, dangerously? And you might think, as I do when that happens to me, where is a policeman when you really want him to be around? How you wish that that person would get the summons, the ticket for their behavior. And on rare occasions, that happens. Down the road, you see that person who is driving so recklessly and speeding so fast, pulled over with a highway patrolman behind him, and he is receiving uh, poetic justice, you might say. The person is getting what they deserve for their behavior. 
There are many examples of this poetic justice, as, as it is sometimes called in the Bible. Consider how Jacob deceived Esau and he deceived Isaac, but in turn he was deceived by his uncle Laban. He received what he had given out. Consider how Job lost everything he had, but in the end he had twice as much as what he had in the beginning. Or David, although he was promised the kingship, he was pursued relentlessly by wicked King Saul from one cave to another before he was finally uh, crowned king of Israel. But here in Esther chapter 7, God's poetic justice reaches a high point, a literal high point, Here we see Haman hanged on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. And not only does Haman get hanged on those gallows, but he makes a total fool of himself in the process. When Esther exposed him as the adversary of the Jews, a wicked, vile enemy of her people, the king left the room in a rage, and Haman realizing that his fate had already been decided by the king, uh, went to plead for his life from Queen Esther. He fell on the couch where Esther was reclining. But certainly he knew the law of the Medes and the Persians that historians point to, that no one outside of the king's eunuchs could come within seven steps of any of the concubines of the king, much less the queen. Yet, as the king entered the room, enraged, there Haman was, falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. But things would get even worse for Haman. His face was covered, which was commonly done for those who were facing execution in that era and in that that nation. And although he could not see the king's eunuch, Harbona, He could hear him speak in verse 9 and verse 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then... The chapter closes by telling us that the king's anger abated. In an act of poetic justice, Haman built his own gallows, or as we might say today, he dug his own grave. And that is part of what makes Esther such an interesting book. In the book of Esther, we see how God works behind the scenes to bring about Poetic justice, even though the name of God is not mentioned one time in the entire book, we see the hand of God's providence on every page. We were talking in the council room beforehand about how some have said Esther shouldn't be in the Bible because, after all, God's name is never mentioned and some of the content is quite racy and there is a lot of bloodshed later on in the book. 
But obviously the Holy Spirit inspired this book to be written that we might get a glimpse of the power of our Almighty God working behind the scenes even through all the turbulence and through all the troubles that are faced by his people and that are encountered by the nations of the world. However, in your life, in my life, do you always see God's poetic justice happening? Do you always see God's hand of providence on every page of your life? Or instead of poetic justice, does God sometimes seem silent as you suffer and as you face injustice and hardship? That is what happened to Mordecai. Often it seemed as though God was silent when he and the people of God were suffering greatly. Admittedly, in this chapter, as well as in chapter 6, we see where God turned the tables on the enemy of the Jews. In the previous chapter, we read where, because the king could not sleep one night, the record of his reign was read to him, and that one seemingly insignificant event uh, brought about a total turning of the tables and would lead to justice being meted out for Haman, the enemy of the Jews. It was recorded there that Mordecai had spared the king's life. He had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh to assassinate the king. But before that sleepless night of King Ahasuerus, Mordecai must have wondered at many times, just as you might wonder at many times in your life, why does God seem silent? when we suffer and when we face injustice and when we face inequities and problems in our lives. Consider how God seemed silent when the king promoted Haman. In the closing verses of chapter 2, Mordecai had exposed this plot of Bigthana and Teresh to take the king's life. So you might expect chapter 3 of the book of Esther to begin by saying, Then the king honored and elevated Mordecai and thanked him for sparing his life. But instead, how does Esther chapter 3 verse 1 begin? It says, After these events, after the king's life had been spared by Mordecai, King Ahasuerus honored Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than any of the other nobles. At that time, from a human perspective, it would be logical to promote Mordecai. Yet God was not only silent, but actually allowed the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of his people, to be elevated and to be given a position of great power in the government of the Medes and Persians. The same was true when Haman plotted the destruction of the Jews. Esther 3, verse 5 and 6 describes how when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or bow before him and pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of just killing Mordecai. Instead, 
Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. It was God's people that Haman was plotting to destroy. From our point of view, it would only make sense for the Lord to send down one sure bolt of lightning and do away with Haman, or at least open the ground and have the earth swallow him up the way the Lord had the ground open up and swallow Dathan and Abiram and many others in the Old Testament era. But instead, God was silent. As Haman went to the king with his plot, we might think then that maybe the Lord would intervene by using the king. We might think after the king hears this plot, he will realize that Haman is really a vile, wicked person. He's bloodthirsty. He wants to kill a whole group of people within the king's kingdom, within the Medes and the Persians. Surely the king will react. But here again, God remained silent as the king took off his signet ring, which represented the vast power of the Medes and the Persians, and he he gave it to Haman. He gave him carte blanche to do whatever he desired to do with the Jewish people. And through it all, God was silent. In a similar way, at the end of chapter 5, we find Haman building those gallows, gallows that were 75 feet high. The height of, of the gallows makes it clear that Haman didn't just want to hang Mordecai. He wanted to make a spectacle out of Mordecai. He wanted all the citizens of Susa to know about and to witness the hanging of Mordecai. And there again, it seemed as though God was silent. This seeming silence of God in the troubles and heartaches and problems of his people has perplexed God's people throughout the ages. Many of the Psalms, including the Psalm this evening, Psalm 140, express the feeling of the psalmist that God has rejected his people and seems silent amid their troubles. In Psalm 74, verse 1, Asaph asks, Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Or consider, consider how Habakkuk felt. He begins his prophecy with these questions. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. And if we are honest, we will admit that the silence of God in our lives can also be perplexing and frustrating at times. We face tremendous obstacles, maybe not a Haman who wants to literally hang us, but we face the gallows of our own problems that are so tall and imposing and loom over us and threaten to undo us, along with the sin within us that torments our soul, and it seems as though God is silent. 
So often it seems that no matter how fervently we pray or seek God's face and wisdom, he remains silent. How then are we to, uh, how then are we to react to the seeming silence of our God? When God seems silent, we need to remember, first of all, that he is not bound by time. We see the events in our lives like so many snapshots on a Facebook page. But God sees the whole scope of your life and my life. He ordained the number of days that each one of us will live, and he knows the experiences that we will face and the challenges that will come into our lives. The Lord sees the whole progression of your life and my life, beginning to end. He knows how everything will turn out. He knows how we will die. He knows our obituary long before it is written. And often he simply says to us through his word, Wait for me. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 27 verse 14 repeats that phrase not once but twice. Wait for the Lord. And as you wait on the Lord, realize that God will give grace for every circumstance, even when he seems silent. It is hard for us to comprehend, I'm sure, just how dangerous and stressful the situation was that Esther found herself in, described in verse 3 and 4. Admittedly, the king had promised her up to half the kingdom, but that was just a manner of speaking. She knew full well that Haman was the king's right-hand man. He was the king's confidant. King Ahasuerus and Haman had a history together, and in that history, Ahasuerus had always given Haman whatever he desired, even his signet ring with the vast military might of the Medes and the Persians to carry out the edict against the Jews. Consequently, as Esther revealed this plot to the king, she had no assurance that the king would side with her. Would he believe her? Or would he stick up for Haman? She certainly knew what he had done with her predecessor, Queen Vashti. She was disposed by the king in a fit of anger, and a, a beauty contest was begun, written about in chapter 1, where the king sought someone to replace the queen, and that's how God in providence brought Esther into this position to protect the people of God from extinction at the hand of Haman. But he, she knew that he could certainly do the same to her. He could simply dispose her. She could be the first to be annihilated, and he could find another queen. Yet God gave her grace for the moment. Did you notice how calmly, politely, and yet succinctly she spelled out the situation to the king? She said in verse 3 and 4, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed 
to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. She presented that perilous situation with tactful wisdom because God gave her grace and wisdom for the moment that she was in, for the troubling situation that she faced. And that is always the case. God may seem silent because he doesn't take away the circumstance or the situation that poses a great harm to us, but instead he gives us the grace to know how to live in that situation and to bear up in that situation. The promise of 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 is given to everyone who has saving faith in Christ alone. God promised My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That was true for Mordecai, for Esther, and for God's people in every era of time. Some of you may have heard this poem before or read the poem. It was written by an unknown soldier. They don't know the soldier's name. He had received massive and permanent injuries in the Civil War. And due to those injuries, the man lived as a crippled invalid the rest of his life, perplexed and wrestling with God's purpose for all his problems. He wondered how God could be silent when his life was shattered, forever changed by war. And as the crippled soldier's life drew to a close, he wrote this poem. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity so that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for, almost despite myself, my prayers were answered. I am, among all men, most richly blessed, he wrote. You see, God gave grace to that soldier for every thorn, for every circumstance that he faced. He did the same for Mordecai and for Esther so long ago. He did the same for the Apostle Paul and everyone else who has saving faith in him alone. And God promises the same for you and for me. He promises that his grace will be sufficient for whatever comes up in our life. His promise is not to remove the thorn or the troubling situation, but that his grace will indeed be sufficient. And then a second application. God will right all wrongs, just as he did with Haman. We don't always see that in our lifetime. How many Christians 
Many deep kneeling before captors in orange jumpsuits have been beheaded by the forces of ISIS. How many Christians are persecuted and martyred every day around the world? An amazing amount. And there does not seem to be any consequence for the actions of those who persecute. They go from one brutality to another, each more cruel and heinous than before. And it seems as though God is silent. And yet on the last day, on that great day of judgment, God will correct all wrongs. He will pay back evildoers for all the evil they have done, unless by his grace they repent of their sin and turn in saving faith to Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about that. Second Thessalonians 1 Verse 6 and 7, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. That day is coming. We don't always see the poetic justice of God played out in our world the way Esther and Mordecai did when Haman was hanged. In fact, that is a rarity. Yet that day is most assuredly coming when the Lord will correct all wrongs and bring his righteous judgment on those who have not repented of their sin and turned in saving faith to Jesus Christ. As we see Esther put her life on the line to spare the Jews, the scripture calls us to look beyond. We are to look beyond the time frame of the Medes and the Persians to the Roman Empire, the Jewish nation and the Jewish leaders brought an innocent man to Pilate. They had charged him with blasphemy But Pilate could find no basis for a charge against him. Esther was a fallible queen. She was a sinner saved by grace, just like you and just like me. Yet her life as one who delivered God's people foreshadows and points us to the life of Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer, deliverer, and protector of his people. And he is perfect, spotless, and sinless. Yet although he was and is and always will be innocent, perfect, holy, righteous in every regard, he was unlawfully crucified. And through it all, it seemed as though his heavenly Father was silent. It seemed that way to those who mocked him. They called out, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. If he is really God, let him come down from the cross, and we will then believe in him. It also seemed as though God was silent to those who wept and grieved, to the disciples and Mary and Martha and the others with them. But it didn't only seem as though God the Father was silent to those who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. It seemed that way to Jesus as well. 
His last words included that agonizing cry recorded in Matthew 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it was a rhetorical question. The eternal Christ knew from all eternity that he would be forsaken by his Father. The justice of God requires that the penalty for sin be paid. The perfect justice of a perfect, righteous God required that the curse of your sin and my sin be borne. God would not be just if there was not a perfect payment for our sins. None of us could pay. Only someone perfect could bear the curse of your sin and my sin. Only someone without even a shadow of sin, not even a minute trace of sin, would qualify to pay the penalty. The only one who fits that description is God himself. Thus, to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine, the eternal Christ took on human flesh. He did so with the express intent of paying the penalty for sin so that God would be, in the words of Romans 3.26, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Haman's death was poetic justice. He deserved exactly what he received. The death of Jesus was perfect justice, even though the innocent, righteous, holy Son of God was declared guilty. It was perfect justice, not that Jesus deserved the cross, but that the perfectly just God would allow himself to be crucified. By doing so, he satisfied his own righteous requirement that the penalty for sin must be paid. And he paid the penalty 100% completely. On the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, Jesus explained to some of his disciples what was written about him in all the scriptures. Yes, even Esther, without any mention of God's name in the entire book, is pointing us to Christ. He is the ultimate and perfect redeemer, protector, and deliverer of his people. Do you confess him as your redeemer from sin, your savior, your Lord? If so, you know of a deliverance that is far greater than the deliverance that the Jewish people had through the work of Esther back in her day. Even when God seems silent, you can be assured that the one who redeemed you from your sin is also the one who has spoken to you in his word. You can be assured that he is not a silent God at all, but instead inspired 66 books to be written for your instruction, edification, and salvation. As John 20 verse 31 puts it, but these are written that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May that describe your faith and my faith this evening and always. Amen. Lord our God, we thank you that you are the God who redeems your people, that you protect your people, that even when we face persecution and should we face martyrdom, we cannot be separated from your love for even that last enemy to be destroyed, that enemy of death simply brings us into your glorious presence. So, Lord, how we thank you for who you are and for how you care for us. And we thank you, Lord, that your providence is indeed written not only on every page in the book of Esther, but on the pages of our lives, that you lead and guide us faithfully, and that above all you have led us and guided us to your Son and given us by your grace, saving faith in him alone. May that be true for each one of us gathered here. But we do pray in Jesus' name.